This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Asian people are welcome here, no hate, no fear. Asian people are welcome here, no hate, no fear. Thousands of people in cities across the country rallied last weekend to stop anti-Asian hate, a response to the wave of violence against Asian Americans and the deadly shootings at three Atlanta-area spas. At a rally in Los Angeles, State Assemblymember David Chu said more must be done to stop the violence after a year of political rhetoric demonizing Asian communities. Enough is enough. We need leadership across our country, in every state, at every level of society, to take action and bring justice to our victims. We've got to stand up to these hate crimes. Prosecutors in the Georgia case have not yet decided whether to pursue a hate crime sentencing enhancement to the murder charges the defendant is already facing. In fact, incidents of assault and harassment that look like hate crimes are often not charged as hate crimes because of the legal requirements. Joining me is Jack McDevitt, a professor at the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Northeastern University and director of the Institute for Race and Justice. What is the definition, the legal definition of a hate crime? A hate crime is a criminal incident that's motivated either entirely or in part by a person's difference. When we're talking about hate crimes, we're talking about criminal incidents. We're not talking about things that would be non-criminal. So, for example, if someone uses a racial slur, that's protected speech in the United States. So that wouldn't be a hate crime. Even if someone gave a speech and said, you know, I believe that all of this group should not be in the United States, that's not a hate crime. So we're talking about crimes like assaults, threats, harassment, things like that, that are already criminal incidents. And then the motivation for it is the person's difference. But the important part of that is in most states, it has to be only partial motivation. So in other words, if you think about a crime where someone might decide to go rob people and they choose to rob immigrants or people they perceive to be immigrants because they think they won't go to the police, then that's still a hate crime and a robbery. It seems as if, and I don't know if it's, you know, the fault of police, the fault of prosecutors, that hate crimes aren't being charged in all the incidents when they could be. That's absolutely true. Both groups have some fault in this. So, for example, if we're talking about a victim comes to the police and says that they were a victim of a hate crime, sometimes the police will tell them, no, it wasn't just go on about your business. It was just kids playing or something. And in that way, the police would be the ones that were causing it not to be recorded as a hate crime. On the other side, prosecutors frequently say, let's think about the cases in Oakland where you see on the videotape people being thrown to the ground. That's an assault, assault and battery. And what the prosecutor might say is, with this video, I can get a jury to convict pretty easily on an assault and battery charge. But if I then add on a hate crime charge that says that they assaulted them because they were Asian, I have to have different evidence and more evidence to prove that part. And it's easy for me to get the conviction on the assault. So why would I make my life more complicated by trying to get the conviction on the hate crime too? And the reason to get the conviction on the hate crime is so that the perpetrator, if convicted, gets more prison time? I'd say that's one, but not the most important reason. The most important reason is to say to the members of that community that we understand these crimes are motivated by bias and that we are going to take them seriously and we're going to try to protect you. 
And so the more important reason to use the hate crime charge is to send a message back to the members of the community that's being attacked that we don't share the bias of the offender and that we reject the notion that you shouldn't be in this community. Hate crimes are symbolic. The offenders want to send a message that we don't want you in our community, our workplace, our college campus, our high school. And we have to, as a society, have to send a message back that we reject those notions, that we want a more diverse society and we want everyone to be a functioning part of that society. What kind of evidence can a prosecutor introduce to prove something is a hate crime? I take it if someone yells a slur and while they're committing the crime, but what other kinds of things? Well, you're exactly right. The most common evidence is name calling and slur during the course of an event. Often offenders will say, you know, you so-and-so go back to your own country or you don't belong here or whatever. But more commonly these days or increasingly commonly these days, one of the things that happens is that individuals will go into chat rooms. And so when the police make an arrest, they generally seize the computer to see what kinds of searches people have been doing. And we see more and more these days that offenders go into chat rooms of like-minded people who feel that, you know, that share their biases and they get egged on to act them out in these chat rooms. So if they see somebody who's been in the chat room and been saying things like, we should get rid of all of this group in our community or whatever, that is also part of the evidence that can be used at trial. Now, in order to charge a hate crime, does the state itself have to have hate crime legislation in place? Well, we now have federal legislation. With the James Byrd Matthew Shepard Act, we have federal legislation that could be charged federally, but the vast majority of them will be charged at the state level, right? And each state has a different set of hate crime laws, which makes it complicated. So, for example, LGBTQ folks are protected in most states, but not all, as a protected group. Women, interestingly enough, are not protected in every state, but only in some. So we do have a bit of a patchwork across the country of laws. Some of them are standalone laws that say, you know, if you commit this with bias, it's a crime. Others, as you suggested before, are what they call sentence enhancements, which means that if you commit an assault and you get a penalty of five to 10 years in prison, If it's bias motivated, we can add a year or two years onto that penalty. What does it take to get federal prosecutors to charge a hate crime? They're rare, but what we're looking at from January 6th is a bunch of federal prosecutions for the rioters who went out to Capitol. And so generally speaking, it has to be a federal nexus. And what I mean by that, it has to be on federal land or dealing with someone who's involved with providing federal services. And we can then go ahead and charge it under the federal system. The more common federal approach is, though, that what will happen is the FBI will offer services, support services, to a local law enforcement agency. And that's really helpful and important because these are rare events. We, you know, we see them a lot in the media, but in an individual jurisdiction where you might have a, a police department who's dealing with regular normal crime, they may not see more than a handful of them in a year. And so to have the expertise of the FBI be able to come in and help you, and also the resources of the FBI to help with an investigation is is very beneficial. Even though 47 states have hate crimes, 86.1% of law enforcement agencies reported to the FBI that not a single hate crime had occurred in their jurisdiction in 2019, according to FBI data. Is that because they don't want to show that those crimes are there or because they just don't recognize them? 
I think it's both of those things, and it's also honest reporting in some cases. So I think you're you're very insightful what you say. Some police departments go back. I started training police on this with the FBI in the 1990s. So in those days, they were all afraid that their community was going to be called racist, and they didn't want to report hate crimes because they're afraid of what it will do to businesses and property and their community. I think we're mostly past that now, but obviously some departments still are afraid of that. So there's some of that. The other thing is that frequently, as I was saying, police don't want to get involved in a case where someone throws rocks through someone's window and they would rather report it as vandalism. And so they just make mistakes. And I'll give you an example of one in a moment. And then we also have places where there are obviously hate crimes. We've had big cities of over 100,000 population that have reported zero hate crimes over the years. And that's just crazy. And that means that there's not a commitment to prosecuting hate crimes. What we've done in, in our research and others have looked at it is, and we've talked to police departments across the country about hate crimes. And, and I'll give you one anecdote. We went to a police department in California one time, and we were saying, you've reported zero hate crimes. Have you ever had one that you thought was a hate crime? And they said, yes, you know, I want to tell you about it. We thought we had a hate crime. We investigated, and it turned out it wasn't. And so I said, well, what did you learn? Said, well, a black family moved into an all-white neighborhood, and somebody burned a couple of crosses on their lawn. And I was a bit incredulous and said, um, how could that not be a hate crime? And they said, well, we went and we got the crosses and we looked at them. And it turned out they were really small crosses. They were less than a foot tall. There were four of them, but they were all really small. And in the police department's mind, you know, it had to be a six foot cross wrapped in rags like they've seen on television. And they said, oh, this was just kids. This isn't a real hate crime. So sometimes agencies just need to understand more about how these things uh, manifest themselves. So that brings up Atlanta, where mm -hmm. out of eight victims, six were Asian, two were white from two different businesses. And the suspect denies being motivated by racial animus. How should the police and the prosecutors be proceeding here to get to the bottom of it? It's a great question. And it is a, a difficult case, but they should be looking at, you know, what made this individual target these particular establishments? The individual in the media reports is saying that they have a sex addiction and they were trying to remove temptation. But that's what a lot of hate crime offenders say. If these people weren't here, I would be better off. What we find is most hate crime offenders tend to be people who are not successful. They're people who are out of work or their marriage has dissolved or their family's having fights with them and they're blaming somebody else for the situation they find themselves in. And it seems like this individual fits that model to a T, blaming the women working in the massage parlors for his sex addiction. And so I would definitely look at it as a potential hate crime. Obviously, they're murders as well. But I mean, it, to send the message to the Asian community, as you know, looking across the country right now, Members of the Asian community are incredibly frightened, and they go out in groups as opposed to singly. They have patrols to support their elderly members of the community, and we need to send messages back that we're not going to tolerate people attacking members of the Asian or the Asian American community, and one way to do that is to charge and get convictions in hate crime offenses. 
So what would they have to show in Atlanta? It's not enough that there were six Asians out of eight victims, that the businesses were owned by Asians. If he doesn't actually say it, they'll look through his background to find animus? They'll look through his background. They'll look through the computer sites he's been saying as he'd be going into anti-Asian chat rooms talking about, you know, what's wrong with the Asian community. Has he himself sent threats via his computer emails or texts that say, you know, anti-Asian sentiments? Those kind of things would be the kind of evidence that would help the police understand that this is part of the motivation. It's also true, you know, it, it is it is a case that if we look back before the last administration, we saw a spike in anti-immigrant hate crimes. And that spike was associated with legislation in multiple states, started in California, as you remember, anti-immigrant kind of legislation that denied them rights or privileges or tried to keep immigrants out of communities. And we saw that was followed by a spike in hate crimes in those states. And what happens is when we start to demonize a group, like at that point it was immigrants, this point, because of the pandemic, it appears to be Asians and Asian Americans, you know, that emboldened some people out there to say, well, yeah, they don't deserve to be here. Well, yeah, if I hurt one of them, no one's going to care. And so that's the dynamic. And so that dynamic may have been part of this. In other words, this individual could have been emboldened to say he he was always thinking about something to do to them. But now with the rhetoric of, you know, the Asians associated with the pandemic, which is completely wrong, it emboldened him to say, okay, well, if I go out and act on this feeling I have, Nobody's going to care. What's your take? Do you think that the Atlanta shootings should be charged as hate crimes? Well, obviously it should be charged as murder first. But I also think that it would be very helpful if they had the evidence to charge it as a hate crime. And so they should be looking for, as we talked about before, what kinds of statements this individual's made on social media, what kinds of chat rooms and websites he's visited, to see if there's a case that says he has articulated anti-Asian bias and that that may have contributed to the murders that he committed. Should the bar be lowered for bringing hate crimes? Absolutely. We don't have many. There's 5,000 a year in the United States. So that's not a huge amount compared to all of the other crimes that are being reported. But to give you an example, in Massachusetts, for a hate crime to be found against a woman, In other words, the woman was the target of a hate crime. The person hated women, which may be the case in obviously the Atlanta situation. One has to show that the person committed the act against a woman, but then they have to show that they prior incidents where they had restraining orders by different women in their past. So the bar is so high to be able to get an anti-female hate crime. You know, you have to find this case where this person has been a serial offender for women and there's documentation of it. And so I think that, yes, like I gave you the case with the crosses, we tend to look for the most egregious crimes as hate crimes and not some of the more everyday crimes that we see that are also bias motivated. It's important to understand that people are incredibly vulnerable hate crime victims. And the reason for that is that you carry the cause of the victimization with you. And what I mean by that is, as a criminologist, I could tell you if your house was robbed, how to make it less likely that your house would be robbed again. You could put in alarms, we could tell the police, we could do a lot of things. But if you're attacked because you're black, or somebody perceives you as Jewish, or you're Asian, 
what do you do to make yourself feel safer? Wherever you go, you still carry that characteristic with you. And so that's one of the reasons that hate crimes are different, and they call for different kinds of responses. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Jack. That's Professor Jack McDevitt of the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Northeastern University and director of the Institute for Race and Justice. Supreme Court justices indicated Tuesday that an appeals court ruling could harm public safety on American Indian reservations, with several justices raising concerns ranging from drunk drivers to serial killers. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. Jordan, tell us about the incident in the case. So Joshua James Cooley was pulled over on the side of the road, U.S. Route 12, around one in the morning one night in February 2016. And this road that he was pulled over to the side of runs through the Crow Reservation in Montana. And there was a Crow Highway officer who went over to check on the truck because it's an area that didn't get great phone reception. So it wasn't necessarily looking for criminal reasons, just to check to see what was going on. And there was a lengthy encounter then when the officer went to the car. Cooley actually had a young child with him, as well as multiple guns, and it turns out the methamphetamine. And Cooley wound up getting charged federally because as a non-Native person, the tribe didn't have jurisdiction over him. But even though he was being charged in federal court, Cooley said that because he was initially detained and searched by a tribal officer, that tribal officer didn't have jurisdiction. And so he moved to suppress the evidence on those grounds. And what did the Ninth Circuit rule? The Ninth Circuit approved the granting of the suppression motion. So the Ninth Circuit, like the federal district court, ruled in favor of Cooley. They said that the tribal officers' jurisdiction is limited in the following way. They said that an officer can stop a person who's traveling on this public right-of-way within the reservation to determine whether they're Indian and therefore whose jurisdiction they fall under. And if they're not, or if they're not able to determine this, then the officer can only detain the person to then turn them over to state or federal authorities if it's apparent or obvious that state or federal law is being violated. So in this instance, wasn't it apparent when he saw the guns that state law was being violated? Well, there's a question over at what point those laws would kick in. And so Cooley would say that by the time that they were deeper into this interaction, that the officer had already violated his jurisdiction because at the point where the officer determined that he's a non-Indian, that should have ended the matter. And then the Crow officer should have called for backup at that point and not done anything further in terms of delving into the car and continuing the interaction. And so it's an additional question which came up during the argument in the case as to what counts as apparent or obvious. But the government is saying that this is a basically an additional unnecessary standard that's grafted onto the usual reasonable suspicion standard that cops would need in normal roadside interactions. So the Justice Department is fighting the Ninth Circuit decision and with the backing of the tribes? Yes, not just the Crow tribe, but many other tribes and other 
similar interest groups as well, because it's a ruling that could have wide implication across the country. Is this a challenge to tribal sovereignty? I think that that's certainly one way to look at it, because the whole backdrop of these cases is stemming from this really long and pretty sordid history of tribes being dispossessed of their land. And there are all of these important questions of what jurisdiction they have left. And so it's against that backdrop that the federal government is saying, and the tribes are saying too, that they have at the very least this limited authority to maintain some semblance of order on their reservations. And so they see it as a challenge to that. They see Cooley's argument and the Ninth Circuit's argument as really a challenge to them at least being able to maintain this order on their reservations. So the justices' concerns seem to run the gamut from drunk drivers to serial killers. Tell us about that. Right. So this complicated setup where you can only do limited things in terms of determining someone's status raises all of these questions of what exactly an officer is allowed to do and what they're supposed to do. Justice Thomas, for example, raised the question of what if the driver fits the description of a known serial killer, but they didn't commit any crimes on the reservation and they're a non-Indian. Under the Ninth Circuit's rule, would the officer then just have to let that person go? Questions like that where it raises the issue of what exactly officers are allowed to do and whether the Ninth Circuit's rule is workable and safe. And a bunch of the justices, obviously, along with the Justice Department, suggested that the status quo in the Ninth Circuit is not good and not safe. And that's what's leading them to challenge that ruling on appeal. So, Jordan, what was the best argument made by the defendant's attorney? So, In a lot of cases, there will be one side that's focusing on all of these negative consequences that can come out, a parade of horribles. I think the defense was looking to not really get into that and just say, look, this is more of just a straightforward matter of whether the tribe has this jurisdiction. And his argument was that they don't. And this is the legal argument that he made, but it also could potentially go to the practical concern. He said that A lot of issues can be avoided by cross-deputizing tribal officers with other jurisdictions. Then that way, they'd be able to act under the authority of these other jurisdictions. And the Justice Department, in turn, had response to that and talking about why the government thinks that that's unworkable. But there certainly are arguments to be had on the other side. Just after the argument, it's not clear to me that they're going to carry the day here. And Chief Justice Roberts said that the Supreme Court has recognized that tribes retain some inherent authority. Did he explain what he meant by inherent authority? Well, that's an important point that really sets the whole backdrop here in what I mentioned before in talking about how, you know, just the fact of a reservation. We're talking about land that is still left that tribes have. And so, the issue, and this is an issue that the government is putting forth, is that that's what gives them this jurisdiction, at least in this limited instance, temporarily before they turn a person over, is this inherent authority to act in this way. And so it's really an issue that kind of paints the whole backdrop here, because even though the justices seem sympathetic to the government's argument, there are still debates over where exactly 
this native authority comes from. And there are different aspects to that. And so while it does seem like the court is sympathetic to siding with the government, it's not exactly clear on what grounds they're going to do that. Former federal prosecutors appointed by both Democratic and Republican presidents told the court in a statement that Indian country criminal jurisdiction is, quote, a confounding morass for tribal, federal, and state authorities. After hearing these arguments and and studying this case, does that sound about right? I think so, and that's a point that I think Justice Kavanaugh latched on to during the argument where Justice Kavanaugh raised the point that And this was while the defendant, Cooley's lawyer, was arguing and saying, look, the government's argument might have some things to criticize about it. But Justice Kavanaugh was saying there's something to be said for trying not to do further damage, in a sense, to this complicated morass and just trying to keep things simple here. And so there's no doubt, no matter which side of this you're on, that this is a complicated area of the law. And so hopefully at least one thing that the court can do here is maybe try and clear up just how all these different interlocking laws apply here. What was Justice Gorsuch's take in particular since he was the justice who wrote the opinion in the Oklahoma case? That's right. He wrote the McGirt decision last year. That was an incredibly important opinion for tribal sovereignty, which also arose in a criminal case. So at a very broad level, It does have some similarities with this case. It does seem like Justice Gorsuch is inclined to side on the tribal side of things again, although in this case, the issue is being raised by the federal government, and it's the tribes who are, as an amicus, supporting the government. He raised, again, this issue, which I think tribal observers appreciated in talking about looking at it from the standpoint of what authority do the tribes have left and starting from that standpoint. And so from the point of if it hasn't been taken away, then it's authority that they still have. And that's a very important principle that Native American law practitioners look to. And so they saw Justice Gorsuch's questions as good ones for the federal government and the tribes in this case. Just a general question. If a crime is committed on an Indian reservation, by a non-Indian. Can that person be tried in the tribal courts? No, they can't. And that's based on prior Supreme Court precedent, which isn't at issue here, but it's one thing that complicates matters. That's part of what goes to the jurisdiction argument that the officer in this case, the Crow tribe officer, didn't have jurisdiction even for this limited purpose. Let's turn to something else Supreme Court related, and that's the appeal in the case of the Marathon bomber, Johar Tsarnaev, and the Supreme Court decided to take the appeal. What's the focus of the appeal? The focus of the appeal has to do with pretrial publicity, and the First Circuit Court of Appeals this past summer said that the trial judge in the case didn't do enough to probe jurors about it, and so Obviously, this was a hugely public case and a lot of media attention, and the appeals court wound up reversing the death sentences on those grounds. And this petition was pending for months. Does it seem odd that the justices decided to take the case, even when the administration has changed and the position on the death penalty may change? Does it seem strange? Yes and no. So the reason that you could argue that it's strange is because there is this 
new administration. Obviously, President Biden has said that he opposes the death penalty. And so you might think that the court will be at least waiting to see whether the Justice Department now under him might withdraw the petition. But on the no side of it, I think by looking at the way the calendar worked out here is that there was a conference, a whole conference, at least the week that went by since the time that Merrick Garland was appointed attorney general. And that was one important step that I thought maybe the court was waiting on to see whether they would take the case or not. And between the time that Garland was appointed and the court's decision to grant the case, there was a couple weeks that had gone by and there was no word from the Justice Department. So I think it is very possible that the court was waiting to see what the Justice Department did. And that's why the court didn't do anything for all these months. And then perhaps said, look, this new administration, whatever it's going to do, it had the opportunity to change its position. And so we're going to grant the case. Now, the administration could still change its position, but now it's going to have to do it in a slightly more awkward posture if it does. The administration has changed positions at least five times since Joe Biden became president. So I suppose it won't be so unusual for it to do it here. Right. And so, again, that goes to the point of the court knows that this administration knows how to change positions. And so it certainly had the opportunity to do so before the court granted review in the Cernayev case. But for whatever reason, the Justice Department chose not to do anything, at least not yet. Thanks, Jordan. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every week, 9 at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio.